And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, December 13th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, going to the moon with nothing to wear. Plus, DOE's new collaborative seeks to boost domestic supplies of critical materials. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the military, as you know, has long relied on GPS, geographic positioning systems, to provide accurate position, navigation, and timing. They call it PNT. Given GPS vulnerabilities, though, agencies across the Defense Department have been pursuing alternative PNT technologies, less dependent on GPS signals. And much of the research falls to the Space Development Agency. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has details. And Anastasia, tell us what's going on here. Yes, so to set the stage, the Army has been leading the way for alternative PNT technologies at the Department of Defense. Basically, the service has an alternate PNT signal, and it can still be received by military GPS user equipment increment to radio chipsets. And once fielded, those chips will be able to use M code. M code is military code, and it's a new military signal that is jam resistant and more secure. But Space Development Agency Director Derek Turnier said that it will take a couple more years to realize that. We're working very closely with the Army, who's been pioneering the Alt-PNT across the Department of Defense. They have a signal that they broadcast out, Alt-PNT, that can be picked up with the next generation being fielded now and to be fielded GPS chips, the MGUI Increment 2, right, the uh, M-Code GPS User Equipment Increment 2. And we're working with them to be able to broadcast that same same signal so it can be picked up by existing fielded and planned user equipment so there'll be no modifications. In addition to that, that's a little ways in the future. So that's starting in tranche two and tranche three. We'll be fielding more of that. That was Space Development Agency Director Derek Turnier. All right. And he said now these tranche two transport layer satellites aren't launching for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Does that mean nothing's going to happen in the meantime? Okay, so starting next year, the agency will begin the launch of the Trench 1 transport layer satellites that will carry a navigation message embedded in Link 16 data links. Now, Link My 16, favorite. I know, right? <laughs> Link 16 is an older system. It's been around for decades, and it's not as good as GPS. But Turnier said it still has that capability, and it provides an alternative to the ubiquitous technology, which is very helpful when it comes to military operations. Starting in tranche one and then continuing in tranche two, we are putting a navigation message into Link 16. So Link 16 has been around for the, since the 80s, right, before GPS was, was used in, in combat. Link 16 is what we were going to use for our navigation and timing during that time before GPS. It still has that capability. You can embed a navigation and timing signal into Link 16, and you can use it for that. It's not nearly as good as GPS, but it does give you an alternate. And we calculate our own position, navigation, and timing on board our satellites independent of GPS just by doing timing transfer between the satellites. Again, Derek Turnier, Space Development Agency Director. 
Yeah, sounds like back to the future here. You know, we're going to use 80s technology re- repurposed for the aughts and the yep. 20s. And so will the Space Development Agency be also making the new user equipment and providing it around? I mean, who's going to make this gear? It's not going to come from Sony. Yeah, yeah, good question. So the agency wants to be able to provide the capability without any new user equipment. It's always easier to... and the fastest way to get something out instead of building it. But Turnier said that in the future, it wants to be broadcasting an old PNT signal, either over L-band or over S-band, which would require user equipment. But the agency wouldn't be buying that. It would just be working with the services and making sure that they're fielding such terminals and their equipment either before or right after the agency fields a space capability. And by the way, what is the problem with GPS that they want to have this alternative? Just cybersecurity? Is that the basic problem or the fact that Chinese can hack GPS satellites, that kind of thing? Pretty much. The technology is so ubiquitous. It has so many vulnerabilities. And cyber is one of them. So they're not going to stop using GPS. They just want to have this other system in place in case they need it and have to go to it. Precisely. All right. So what's the timeline for all of this, Anastasia? So no timeline as of yet. Turnier said that they're not making any decisions or working out the specifics until 2028, which is when they will begin the launch of Trench 3 and after that, the Trench 4 transport layer. Given the spiral development approach, the agency plans to get 161 satellites into orbit by next year. Right now, the agency is in Trunch Zero. That's the 28 satellites that they launched this year. It will add additional capabilities in Trunch 2. It will build off of Trunch 1. But based on those launches, they will have a better idea of what's to come for the Trunch 3 and Trunch 4 in 2028 and after. The beauty of the spiral development approach, though, is if you look at Trunch 3 and Trunch 4, I really don't know what's in Tranche 3 and Tranche 4. Tranche 3 will launch in September of 2028. It'll be hundreds of satellites. The specifics of those capabilities aren't yet defined, and they're not defined for two reasons. Number one, I don't know exactly what the state of the art of the technology will be in that time frame. And number two, the threats change. And so I want to make sure that that we can uh, adapt to that threat. So we'll snap the line on what the minimum viable product is for Tranche 3 in about a year. And at that point, then we'll start acquisition for Tranche 3. And then, of course, Tranche 4, we won't know until another couple of years. That's the whole beauty, because then I can adopt what commercial uh, technology is available and fold that into the future tranches, as well as adapt to the current threats. So it sounds like then there will be commercial availability or private sector availability of this new or old capability that's being revived. So maybe we could all have it as the fourth radio in the phone at some point. Yeah, definitely. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Energy Department's new collaborative seeks to boost domestic supplies of critical materials. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
the competition for strategic advantage in economic and military affairs depends more and more on critical materials. Now the Energy Department has launched an initiative it calls the Critical Materials Collaborative. Among its goals, to accelerate a domestic supply chain for critical materials. For more, we turn to the Senior Technology Manager for the Energy Department's Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Technologies Office, Helena Kazdozian. Ms. Kazdozian, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the basics here. What materials are we talking about? Is it lithium to put in batteries, or or does it go way beyond that? It definitely goes beyond that. So actually, just um, this summer, we released a new critical materials assessment um, looking at what materials are critical for the clean energy transition, um, both the short and medium term. Um, so we think about those in a couple different material classes. We have the birth elements. Um, these are generally used in magnets for wind turbine generators and electric vehicle motors. Um, we have the battery materials, uh, you know, for the lithium ion batteries. Um, so lithium, cobalt, nickel. We have uh, semiconductor materials, uh, you know, silicon, gallium, uh, silicon carbide that are used in uh, solar photovoltaics, um, efficient lighting. Uh, we have lightweight materials, so like magnesium and silicon are, and aluminum are used in alloys uh, to lightweight vehicles. Um, we have platinum group metals used for clean hydrogen. And then we also have um, copper and electrical steel on the list. These are pretty ubiquitous materials, but are especially used in uh, transformers and uh, motors for electrical grid and also for, for powering energy. All right, so that's a pretty comprehensive list. Is it fair to say or accurate to say that quite a number number of these are in abundance in places elsewhere than the United States? Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, we have some of materials here in the United States. Um, other materials, uh, you know, are concentrated in other countries like cobalt, uh, pretty notably uh, concentrated in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Right. And a lot of them are in China, too, aren't they? That's right. And there is also the initiative that China has called Belt and Road, where they're trying to get access to the minerals and materials in countries like the Congo throughout Southeast Asia and so forth, where they make investments. That's going on, fair to say? Yeah. And I think more than just controlling the upstream mining of materials, um, a lot of the processing is actually concentrated in, in China. And so that's a part of our strategy as we're building out the domestic critical material supply chains is making sure that we have the capacity to refine and process these materials. Otherwise, if you just mine the materials, you'll have to export them, right? You won't be able to keep them in the United States and support the manufacturing these. All right. So tell us more about this initiative, the uh, Critical Materials Collaborative. What form does it take, and and uh, you know what is the uh, what is the activity that it's actually doing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this has really been, I think, a long time coming. You know, we first had our our first uh, critical material strategy in 2010. It's the first time we assessed what materials are critical. It uh, enabled us to start thinking more strategically about uh, what what our investments look like. So we had investments in the Critical Materials Innovation Hub or CMI that used to be called the Critical Materials Institute. They've been operating for a decade, doing early stage research. At the same time, uh, we had a program looking at producing birth elements from uh, coal-based feedstocks. So can we transform, uh, you know, this mining waste into a resource in the United States? But this is kind of the first time that the department's thinking about how do we align 
all of these into some shared goals, right? And it's really important now because we are sitting here uh, over 10 years later with over $8 billion um, from the bipartisan infrastructure law for critical materials provisions to build out actual supply chains, right? Commercial facilities. We have the Inflation Reduction Act with tax credits also to incentivize that production, manufacturing and recycling. So we, we have kind of a gap right now. We have all this applied R&D, really cool innovation happening, and we have deployment happening, but we don't have the connective tissue to get that innovation into the world. And if we're going to be globally competitive, we really need to be innovative, right? We, we need to reduce the costs of these technologies. We want to reduce the environmental and health impacts while increasing the efficiency and the circularity of the materials. So that's kind of what we're trying to do here. Uh, we want to be that connective tissue to really accelerate the uh, adoption of these uh, critical materials innovations into the um, into the supply chain as it's being built out. But we also want to be building out the innovation ecosystem around that, right? It takes uh, uh, researchers of all kinds from different sectors, national labs, academia, industry. Sure. So, so we're really trying to align um, what we're doing in the department with other agencies and with the research community so that we're, you know, trying to achieve a shared set of goals. We're speaking with Helena Kozdozian. She's Senior Technology Manager for the Energy Department's Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Technologies Office. So a couple of questions. Is there the belief, I mean, surely the processing capabilities are totally within the power of the United States to develop and do. But what about supplies where there simply aren't that much availability of the basic material? Or is the thinking that we've got the material if we wanted to be better at mining, better at finding it in large amounts of ore or whatever the case might be, that we actually could become self-sufficient? Is that part of the thinking? So I think the idea that the United States could be self-sufficient for all critical materials uh, is probably not realistic. We do need to, you know, work with uh, allied countries to to source some materials. But it's not just looking at unlocking, you know, new mines. There's lots of other things we can do, right? So we actually have um, one of our offices looking at, you know, mining of the future program to to look at really surgical approaches to um, to remove materials from the earth in a way that doesn't leave a new legacy of mining waste in the United States really looking to improve the sustainability of those practices, but also looking at unlocking the mine waste, right? Maybe we can achieve 50% of, of our needs from these, even though they're low concentrations, can we look at innovation to get them out? We also look at actually reducing our need our reliance, right? So you can actually try to engineer out the materials, you know, that have been doing that in batteries for a long time with cobalt. And there's lots of examples of that. Can we actually make sure we're being good stewards, increase the efficiency of the, you know, how we're processing these. And then looking at circular economy, right? Extending the lifetimes of those materials in use. And eventually they'll have to be recycled, right? Want to be positioned to do that as well. So it's really a, a diversified approach that we take in the Department of Energy. And with the money you have, you will be then doing what? Issuing research grants or creating incentives for industry? What form will the work take to create that connective tissue? Yeah, so within the CMC, uh, we won't be, uh, it doesn't have any money on its own. What it does, it's aligning the offices that are competing out research to coordinate. To be a member of the CMC, you want to go out and, and compete for, for funds, but then we'll have lots of opportunity to engage, and I can talk more about what that will look like. But right now on the streets, we have two funding opportunities. One is through the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management. It's $150 million really to advance R&D um, and 
and really thinking about like, how can you translate that basic discovery into R&D as well as scaling it up? And then we also have in my office, the Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Technologies Office, we have a critical materials accelerator program on the streets. And that's really thinking about prototyping, maturing new technologies, kind of de-risking that step before you can go to a big, uh, a bigger pilot. That CMI is a big part of the CMC as well. This is Again, 10 years standing, a really robust innovation ecosystem and engine all on its own. So we'll be able to learn from their experience as well. So that's how to be a member is, you know, go out to funding that's being coordinated through the CMC. You must collaborate with some of the other federal agencies, as you mentioned. I imagine commerce maybe might have a big part of this and Defense Department? Yeah, you know, we just started the CMC. We launched it in September, or we're still getting our footing underneath, but we will have other agencies engaged. Certainly, the Department of Interior, NSF, DOD, wherever there's research alignment, we want to have active engagement, but we'll certainly continue to coordinate with other agencies that help set the policy framework, right? So we understand the context. Given the prevalence of some of these minerals and places that are we'd rather not be concentrated, what about some of the other nature? allies or Canada, Mexico, maybe even South America, where access might be more assured, at least than it might be in China, if if China decides, well, no more cobalt for you, no more lithium, you know, for you. Are other nations maybe part of this alignment? Yeah, the United States uh, engages in a lot of different international engagement. We work through the International Energy Agency ministerials to coordinate with other countries. We have bilateral agreements with Canada and Australia and, and I think Brazil as well. The State Department has the Mineral Security Partnership Initiative that's getting going. Um, I'm not an expert on the international front, but certainly we do coordinate with other countries. And by the way, what is your background that you bring to this? Are you primarily a program type of federal person, or are you a materials and manufacturing person? I think myself as as a technologist, my background is in electrical engineering. I get my PhD at Iowa State. I was at the Ames Laboratory for a couple of years before coming to DOE as a AAAS fellow, and then stayed on what was used to be the Advanced Manufacturing Office, now AMTO, to continue to work on critical materials. I've been working on this issue for about 10 years. I started researching this topic when I was in my, my graduate studies. Interesting. Well, we're glad you're on the job. We should say Dr. Helena Kozdozian is Senior Technology Manager for the Energy Department's Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Technologies Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for your interest. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the Education Department could help improve falling math scores. But first, going to the moon and nothing to wear? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The closer NASA gets to returning to the moon, the further away the moon seems to move. Contractors on the Artemis III project are having trouble with some basic items, like the spacesuits astronauts would need in the lunar lander itself. The Government Accountability Office has found now that uh, NASA may be too ambitious in its schedule for the initial launch. We get the latest findings from the GAO's Director of Contracting and National Security, Bill Russell. Bill, good to have you back. Nice to be here, Tom. And you've looked at this from time to time, and you're reporting there is some progress on the contractor's part, but it sounds pretty basic if they can't get the spacesuit done. I mean, what's going on? What's the latest findings here? One thing for context, this is incredibly complex. It's the first time we've tried to return to the moon in over 50 years. 
there's a reimagining of how to do that, not just to do one moon landing, but to create a sustained lunar presence and ultimately uh, set the foundation for human exploration of Mars. So I think that that ups the complexity a little bit. But what we found, uh, to your point, is that NASA's initial schedule is very ambitious when you compare it to um, the average time it takes equivalent NASA projects to go from start to finish. And we found it was about a year uh, faster than the average NASA project, even though there are extra complexities like being able to support humans safely, some of the technical challenges in fueling the lander, getting into orbit, testing that uh, all to meet a 2025 launch date. Right. So you've got a lander and then you've got the crew capsule that takes them up there. Then you've right. got the heavy lift rocket. Then you have the spacesuits that the astronauts have to wear. These are all being developed by industry on behalf of NASA, correct? Correct. We did take a look at the, the arrangements between NASA and the contractors um, and found that there is robust insight into the contractors' activities, especially around um, how they're handling safety issues and the progress that they're making. So the transparency in the relationship between NASA and the contractors was was good. All right. So what are the chief technical problems then? I mean, what's going on, say, with the lander? Because that's kind of essential. If you can't land, you can't get to the moon and the capsule can orbit, but that doesn't do you much good for establishing something permanent. Absolutely. I think the initial testing issues encapsulate the, some of the setbacks. So you saw in recent weeks, SpaceX did a orbital flight test that uh, was more successful than the first one, but still didn't fully meet the objectives. Um, they need to do that an, a number of times to demonstrate the capability of just using the rocket with the, the lander coupled to get into orbit. Once you do that, there are other steps. So that that's the baseline. You have to get that out of the way, and then you can move on to more technically challenging aspects. For example, the current concept of operations calls for basically launching a, a gas station in low Earth orbit, right? So the lander goes, it would have to dock with the, the fueling station, transfer propellant, and then ultimately get to the moon and, and be in orbit there to dock with the Orion crew capsule. So that's no easy feat. Um, there's work to be done to demonstrate that capability. All of that takes time. You know, as as you learn from one test, you have to then reschedule and get the FAA certifications, other things that you need to do the next test. So it sounds it, like it, the architecture of this program, though, is significantly more complicated because each linkage and each component kind of multiplies the complexity relative to the original space program back in the 1960s. Exactly. And that's getting back to the earlier point. You know, this is really a platform to be able to go to the moon multiple times, support multiple missions. Artemis is planned to extend into the 2030s. So it, it's more complicated than a, you know, a one and done approach. And these capabilities are going to be foundational to supporting that larger sustained effort. We're speaking with Bill Russell. He's Director of Contracting and National Security Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And what does NASA say with respect to why they 
shaved a year off their plan relative to the, as you report, 79 months these types of complex plans normally take? Well, that was their initial schedule. The analysis of the 13 months is really based on the work that we did comparing that schedule to the average NASA major project. NASA has said that the human landing system schedule is under review, that that process is ongoing. Well, with respect to launching in 2025, that's not going to happen, is it? Our estimation is that it, it will not. And does NASA agree with that estimation? They're looking at those scheduled dates right now, but they're aware of the challenges that we point out in this report. Right. And so, yeah, what were your recommendations then? How do you simply give yourself more time? Is it a matter of just rebaselining the time, which also means rebaselining the money? Right. And we didn't have any specific recommendations to NASA for this report. Um, we've pointed out in previous reports the need to to look at the integration across all of these systems, right? You have the Orion crew capsule has to work with the space launch system, human landing system. So it's a lot of moving pieces to uh, pull off the Artemis three moon landing. Uh, for this report is really just to show the schedule compression and some of the technical challenges that are outstanding to, to achieve the eventual mission. And you have different contractors developing these different components and that's a little different from the old days when NASA built many things in-house by hand with its own people. And is that an issue, or do the contractors make sure that they're compatible with one another? I mean, these, there's only one specification that's applicable to one of these types of programs, and so they all have to work in concert in some ways. Is NASA able to orchestrate that? We did take a look at that issue and, and found that so far so good in terms of being able to uh, convey what the requirements are for these systems. The spacesuits is a good example of that. The contractor's axiom. NASA had originally designed the updated spacesuit and then handed that to axiom to take to the finish line. Um, there's still some design challenges, technical challenges to create the new spacesuit to support the moon landing mission. There's a lot of aspects like life support and things that that really have to be perfected. But that's one example of NASA shifting from doing something in-house to having a contractor do it. We did look at the contracts and the terms that allow NASA to still have good visibility and found that those were robust. And getting back to SpaceX, they just had a launch that didn't go, as you said, it went better than the last time, which right. blew up. This one also exploded, I think, eventually. So they're getting there. But at some point, just getting one done, oh, good, it didn't explode. That probably doesn't meet NASA's criteria for, can we do this repeatedly and safely? I mean, that's right. that sounds pretty important. And that speaks to the, the volume of the remaining work and the complexity of it, right? You have to demonstrate um, multiple times the ability to get the lander into orbit. And then, as I said, move to the next phase, which shows you can uh, dock the lander with that fuel depot that's that's already in space, transfer propellant, and then get to demonstrate that you can get it to lunar orbit. So all of those things remain to be done. Fundamentally, is this realistic that it can all actually happen? I do think it's realistic. The And there's progress that's being made. It's just the, you know, getting from where we are now to successful launch in 2025. That's the part that seems overly ambitious. Yeah, in some ways, this is like a combination of the Apollo program and the space shuttle program in, in terms of 
just all the working parts to it. That's right. There are a lot of systems that have to work together seamlessly in a, in a new and novel way. And NASA is pretty much uh, on board with what, what it is you're, again, no recommendations, but you're kind of finding things that they don't disagree with. Exactly. Bill Russell is Director of Contracting and National Security at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Great to be here. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the Education Department could help improve falling math scores. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Education performance in developed countries, including the United States, is a mixed bag. That's according to the latest Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, a periodic project of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. In the United States, math performance by 15-year-olds was worse than in 2018, among the lowest ever, as a matter of fact. Reading and science held steady. For analysis of what the results mean, we turn to the executive director of Teach for America's D.C. region, Ryan Tarianen. Mr. Tarianen, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about the PISA assessments. These come out periodically, and they're done internationally? They come out every three years. Um, The PISA began in the year 2000. It's an international test. It's actually created in France predominantly. And what it does is it compares standardized test results in reading, math, and science across over 80 different countries or locations. In 2022, in fact, 620,000 15-year-olds across 81 locales participated in the PISA. And as you mentioned, the report, the results from those tests just came out on December 5th. So this is not a meta-assessment of results reported by different nations with different systems. This is 650,000 kids everywhere taking the same test. Yes, the same test in, of course, their national language. And interestingly enough, this test is really at forefront a literacy test, even when it's focusing on math or science. And the focus of the test does change every three years. It is still at its heart a literacy test. So this particular test that was taken in 2022, which was actually one year later than it should have been because of COVID-19, This test was focused more on math skills. But the thing that's interesting about the PISA math test is most of the questions that are asked of students are in written form. So they may have to read a passage or even a story and be able to take data or information from what they read in order to answer the math questions. So it's not a test where you're going to see a bunch of equations and kids are going to do computations. It really focuses on their reading skills at the same time and also has them apply real-world solutions um, to problems that they may encounter. Now, the United States and the federal government in a number of different domains, including the education department, has been pursuing STEM and the idea of STEM, math and science. And, you know, those are, these are all math requirement types of topics. What should we take away from this in the fact that the scores drop so badly for that particular test in the United States? There's a lot to take out of it. As you mentioned, the scores did drop. In fact, they're 18 points lower this go around than they were when the test results were first released the first time the PISA was done. Um, Those test results released in 2003. And so all these years later, and we're actually on average performing lower in math than we were in 2003. The other thing I want to mention before I get into that is that some people would look at these results and actually think that the United States improved, interestingly enough. 
because our ranking internationally grew. We actually moved up to being 26th in math, which previously we were in the 30s. Uh, so you may think that, oh, the United States did so much better. They're improving. And in fact, what we're seeing is it's just that other countries decrease their scores even more than ours. They may have been more heavily affected by COVID-19. The effects of COVID-19 are something that's very challenging for school districts to improve upon. So for instance, the hiring aspect of teachers is what's really, I think, affecting these scores more than anything, especially in STEM. To put this in, I'm going to speak specifically from my experience as a school and district leader in Washington, D.C., Hiring math teachers, STEM teachers is the most difficult out of all the positions. And it is especially difficult now because Generation Z, the generation who will be becoming novice teachers uh, these years, when they major in STEM fields, they get offers for other types of work in other fields that are much more lucrative than teaching. Um, so it could be extremely difficult to recruit someone who majored in math or computer science or some some other type of science and to come into teaching when they know um, the income level that they'll be entering in is much lower than something that they could be doing otherwise. Um, and so that has been the biggest challenge for schools in the United States is actually being able to get STEM experts to fill these STEM classrooms. I can tell you multiple times we, I've been in situ, I have been in situations where we recruited a fantastic person who was passionate about education, really wanted to be a teacher, but did not necessarily have the strongest math background. And unfortunately, that was the position that was open. Um, and at a certain point, you have to fill that position and you may put someone in who's not the most comfortable with teaching math, but they do it because they really want to be a teacher. And you try your best to be able to build that person's skills to make them into the best math teacher they, they can be. But we're still, unfortunately, lacking people who come in on day one with expertise in STEM fields. And so that's really affecting our students, especially after the effects of COVID-19. We're speaking with Ryan Tarjainen. He is executive director of Teach for America's D.C. region. He's also a former White House fellow with the Education Department. And is there any policy or operational change? I mean, the Education Department has permeated itself deeper and deeper into smaller and smaller aspects of public education over the decades. And public education seems to be getting worse and worse in the outcomes over the ages here. So what uh, could happen at the federal level to improve the situation, do you think? One of the things I learned when I worked at the Federal Department of Education is how frustrating it can be because there is usually all carrot and no stick is what we sometimes would say at the department. So education in the United States is very much controlled at the local level, at the state level, um, and very little of it, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your outlook, can be decided at the federal level. Now, one thing that the federal government, I believe, can do, and I do think that Secretary Cardona has addressed this, is that in the wake of COVID-19, one of the strategies that we know is actually having a strong effect in improving scores, whether in reading or math, is high dosage tutoring. That is pretty much a, a no-brainer, one would say. Like, oh yes, if students get more face time and that's independent or in very small groups with a with a tutor or a teacher, they're likely to improve upon their scores. And absolutely, it makes total sense. The problem was, where are the people, where is the money to fund this? Well, because of money that came out of the, the CARES Act, such as the ESSER fund, the Elementary and Secondary Education Emergency 
Relief Fund and uh, the GEAR Fund, which is the Governor's Emergency Education Relief Fund. There was billions and billions of dollars dumped into education the years of and following COVID-19. And a lot of that money could be spent on creating and hiring programs to provide one-on-one or perhaps three-on-one tutors for the students who had the most decrease in their math and reading. And we are seeing firsthand in D.C., that is probably the intervention that is having the most effect on students. So I believe that the federal government could do more to put money towards or providing grant money towards creating and paying for these high dosage tutoring programs, especially in schools that suffered the most learning loss. Yeah, that's remarkable because you say that, you know, billions and billions and billions were poured into education during the COVID as part of relief. And yet look at the scores and look at the results, you know, at the local education level were pretty bad. And I think a lot of school districts are still digging out. So what you're saying is the federal government should redirect maybe its focus on where funds go in what educational function to actually have some leverage in making scores go up? Yes, absolutely. I think in that first round of over $20 billion going towards public education, the thing that we have to remember is very little of that was actually going towards uh, the education process. It was actually going towards refurbishing and remodeling buildings so that when students came back, uh, they would be able to function, they would have proper ventilation, uh, they would have all the PPE, and the sanitary aspects of the school to make sure that we weren't passing along viruses and diseases, um, since that was obviously becoming the focus of the world at that point. And so a lot of that money actually went into remodeling the entire buildings of schools, um, sometimes building entirely new structures. So that's where the money went at first. Yes, absolutely. And then after that sort of round of remodeling happened is when people started to focus more on the after school or during school programs that could improve on the education of their students. Unfortunately, like that's still in its birth stage, I would say, where it's still very, very new. So that's where I would invest more dollars right now. Yeah, because I guess it's easier to measure how many cubic feet per minute your new air equipment is moving or how many filters you installed or how many new buildings you put up than it is to measure education outcomes. That's longer and more subtle, isn't it? It is. And unfortunately, we were, you know, we were doing distance learning for a year to two years or longer in some places. And Unfortunately, in many of our rural communities, that wasn't really an option. They may not have had the infrastructure for internet access, for every student to have a laptop. I met superintendents from very small districts who really um, inspired me because they went above and beyond creating these mobile uh, Wi-Fi devices that were sent through with buses and literally bus drivers would park the, their bus in front of places where kids could work on laptops that were donated. It was amazing the things that went forward in order to meet the need at the time. So it just shows how resilient we are as a country and how inspiring we are for our students and our, and our children. And right now that everyone's back in the building, we need to be doing everything we can to put more teachers and more adults in front of kids to help build their scores. Ryan Tariainen is executive director of Teach for America's D.C. region and a former White House fellow at the Education Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the PISA results at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
two features of the Homeland Security Department's cybersecurity program known as Einstein are going the way of the VCR, the iPod, and the teletype. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency will put the two Einstein 3A services out to pasture sometime in the coming weeks. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, has details about these changes. He joins me now. And Jason, review for us E3A. What is it? What services did it provide and soon won't? This goes back to 2004 when DHS, before CISA even ex- existed, launched the Einstein program. Now, E3A is the third set of services under E3 under the Einstein program. CISA, you know, basically what E3A does is help agencies detect malicious traffic and take proactive measures to prevent it. It uses tools really developed by the Defense Department, by the intelligence community. It uses classified indicators of compromise, all this data that they can bring into it. And they go, OK, we understand what's happening on our network and where the threats are coming from. Tom, this, uh, DHS has been rolling out E3 capabilities since 2013. So a lot of these are 10 years old. And, and in cybersecurity world, that's like saying, Tom, how's your Betamax doing? Are, are you still watching all those tapes? And the 2023 FISMA report to Congress actually says 87 agencies were using E3 capabilities in 2021. And that actually dropped to 79 in 2022. So fewer agencies are, are using E3A. Right. And is that the reason CISA is ending it? And what will they replace it with? What's their plan here? Well, like VCRs that we used to all have, like iPods that we all used to have and the teletype back before our time, Tom, E3A was good for its time. Before your time. Before my time. (laughs) The teletype. You you remember the teletype. I unfortunately do. But E3A has been basically overtaken by new tools, new capabilities, and basically it's just not needed any longer. And to CISA's credit, they're going to turn it off on December 22nd. Now, specifically, there are two tools that are going away. The first is email filtering capabilities. The second is domain name service sinkholing capabilities. Real quick, DNN sinkholing protects the against the use of domain name server as a means to establish communications, to compromise hosts, to distribute malware. It's redirecting traffic that matches known cyber threat indicators and prevents the connection of those malicious hosts. Now, DNS protection is a key cybersecurity thing. We've heard about that for years. There must be another way of getting at it. Absolutely, and that's that's what's not going away, those services. But DHS is now providing that as a shared service through a, if you will, a commercial capability. Email filtering, very similar. That protects against malicious file attachments, embedded links in email content. Now, in an email to agencies which Federal News Network obtained, CISA wrote the reason for ending these services mainly due to the fact that over the past year, nearly all civilian agencies have migrated to that shared service, the Protective DNS Resolution Service, which is a commercial capability that is much better. Uh, CISA says actually to migrate to their Protective DNS, they've had more than 80 migrations already. And for those agencies that haven't, it's a very easy way to execute 60 to 90 minutes. For email filtering, a lot of those services are now provided through right. my office. 365 through through commercial cloud providers and agencies who are still running on-premise email services not everyone has migrated their email to the cloud they do offer CISA offers a few things to think about ensure your capabilities are configured properly enable the log collection refer to the tick trust internet connection cloud use case in securing email as a service and consider other security capabilities in the meantime Again, CISA says they've been closely evaluating the performance and benefits of email filtering services. And again, in this email, they say basically they've identified a lot of challenges and the value of email filtering just isn't there anymore and the cost benefits are too high. I spoke with Ross Nodorf. He's the executive director of the Alliance for Digital Innovation and a former OMB cybersecurity branch chief. And he says actually that move to the cloud, the commercial email services really is driving a lot of what is forcing CISA to turn off those services. The commercial capabilities have become as good 
that was had some of the government secret sauce on them, right? So I think we've now gotten to a point where a whole bunch of circumstances have led us to a place where people are migrating and moving to the cloud. They are moving to TIC 3.0 architectures. They are using commercial capabilities that are as good, and in some cases, probably even better. You're, so you have this price tag of, what was it, years ago, probably $30 billion, roughly. And they are taking that money and repurposing it towards shared services that are, frankly, better. Ross Nodorf, the executive director of the Alliance for Digital Innovation. So Einstein is getting a haircut. I guess we'll call it Ein. What else is going away of it, or will the rest of it keep rolling along here? Einstein 1 and Einstein 2, those services that are, date back to 2004, 2008 timeframe, they are not going away, at least right now. Uh, Einstein 1, which monitors flow of network traffic transiting from both to and from civilian agencies. They really do analyze network flows and gives CISA information about potential malicious malicious activity. That stays in place. Einstein 2, which also identifies a potentially uh, malicious or harmful computer network activity, uh, it's it's basically an intrusion detection service. service. That also is not going away. Both of those are still going to be routed through the Trusted Internet Connection Services. I spoke with Grant Schneider, the former Federal Chief Information Security Officer and now Senior Director of Cyber Services at Venable. And he says E3A was never really a good fit for civilian agencies as it was for DOD and the IC. So he was updating and redesigning E3A has been a long time in coming. The challenges that we ran into early on, or I think that the, the program ran into, is that when you look at DOD, DOD's got 10 internet access points. Um, so you've got 10 boundaries where you can put a whole suite lot of equipment and defensive stuff and you get to inspect most everything coming and going from the network. Um, when you look at the federal civilian agencies, there isn't really a .gov, right? I've always said, we talk about the .gov network. Well, there's not a, a .gov network. There really is a .mil network on the DOD side. And so every agency has multiple connections to the internet and you then had to get E3A in front of all of those. Again, Grant Schneider, the former federal CISO and now Senior Director of Cyber Services at Venable. And this decision then to turn off these capabilities, I guess they're kind of throwing in the towel for things that are more agile and more up-to-date provided by the private sector where the agency's going. What does this say about cybersecurity in general, do you think? First of all, we have to give CISA a lot of credit. This is actually a good thing that they're turning off these services. This is a recognition that the world is changing. They have better capabilities, that agencies can really you know, lean on these commercial capabilities in different ways. At the same time, the, the continuous diagnostics and monitoring program, the CDM program, is fulfilling a lot of these challenges because they brought in these tools to give agencies the shared services that CISA is offering. So, again, I just want to re emphasize how important this is for CISA taking these actions. You know, Tom, we always hear how government never turns anything off. Well, here's a good example. But I think more broadly than that, and I think this is best said uh, from ADI's Ross Nodorf, there isn't this bright line between commercial and government services as there once was. A lot of cases, solutions that were being provided, regardless of whether or not they are conceived of and developed in part by the government, have transitioned or migrated to commercial providers in a lot of cases, right? So you've got people like CrowdStrike and Crowd or and Cloudflare and some of the other ones who are, who are offering white label solutions to the government that they provide a shared services. And I think that that's great, right? I think that we need to consider across the, the, the stack, right? Whether it's network security, whether it's data security and you know XDR capabilities, whether it's all, all of the above, whatever the shared services are that this is conceiving of that needs to be put in place for departments and agencies need to be viewed at as a partnership between 
the public sector and commercial, right? Commercial tools and, and, and capabilities are going to continue to underpin how the government delivers security. ADI's Ross Nodorf talking about the, the idea that commercial and, and government services are really coming closer together. We're seeing that through other capabilities like zero trust, and we're seeing it through other things as agencies are leaning more on the private sector. And I think that's where, where this is going. And the few agencies that are still using these services about to be switched off, they're getting warnings and they will understand what they have to do to not be left in the lurch when they do get shut off. Absolutely. And I think this is why CISA is really pressing agencies, hey, December 22nd is coming. You know, Tom, it's only nine days away. So really make a plan, know about it. Uh, what I've heard from my, my contacts throughout the agency is that this is not going to be a surprise to most CIOs, most CISOs. But just in case, they really are trying to get the word out more broadly to say, hey, this is important. And I think a lot of uh, this is actually a lot of good thing, again, for agencies to get better capabilities. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 